This podcast contains references to suicide, suicidal ideation, and other types of mental health challenges. If you or someone you know needs help, visit nami.org forward slash help. That's N-A-M-I dot org forward slash help. Or text HOME to 741-741 to reach a volunteer crisis counselor. that's a real normal brain response to feeling completely out of control and hopeless. I feel like hopelessness is sort of best friends with suicidality, so that's a real red flag. Hello and welcome to Pathfinders, the podcast series from RBC Capital Markets that explores the fast-moving world of biopharma and healthcare. I'm your host, Joe Coletti. The COVID-19 pandemic drove the scale and severity of mental health challenges among young people to new heights as they faced isolation, family stress, and extended school closures. Today's youth face unprecedented mental health challenges that add a new level of complexity to the typical adversities of childhood and adolescence. The COVID-19 pandemic drove the scale and severity of mental health challenges among young people to new heights as they faced isolation, family stress, and extended school closures. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2021, more than 42% of high school students reported feeling persistently sad or hopeless. That's a 40% increase from 2009. In addition, nearly a third of students said they experienced poor mental health, and one in five students have seriously considered attempting suicide. Given these staggering statistics on youth mental health, there's an urgent need to raise awareness and create solutions for this growing problem. At our annual Global Healthcare Conference, we welcome soccer stars Brianna Scurry and Dr. Sarah Hess, who joined Andrew Calloway, our Global Head of Healthcare Investment Banking, to discuss these important issues in a special mental health-focused fireside event. In 1999, Brianna and Sarah were part of the U.S. women's national soccer team that captivated the world by winning the FIFA World Cup. Both women later suffered injuries on the field that forced them to abandon their careers as professional athletes and left them facing mental health crises as a result. Since then, both Brianna and Sarah have helped to break down the stigma around mental health in sport and gone on to dedicate their time to support others with mental health challenges. Brianna works as a motivational speaker and advocate and Dr. Hess is a licensed psychologist working with young people. Both speakers emphasize the importance of promoting awareness, particularly when it comes to spotting signs of mental health challenges, as well as a need to encourage those who are struggling to reach out for support. In this episode, they share their personal insights on mental health and discuss some potential solutions to what they describe as a mental health crisis in America. Now let's dive into the conversation. So let's start with your soccer journeys. Um, you guys obviously were incredible high school and college players. Talk to us a little bit about growing up as soccer prodigies. Yeah, so I was born in the Midwest, in Minnesota. And then when I was about five years old, my mom and dad moved away from the city into the suburbs. And it was because of that move that soccer was exposed to me. At the University of Massachusetts, where I had a great college season, uh, playing against UConn at times, um, winning some and losing some. And then uh, in an NCAA uh, Final Four, I played against UNC, and Anson was able to see me play 
Anson, the head coach of the national team, in person. And then shortly after that, I was invited to the national team. So I came into my first camp in um, November 93. And from there, I was number five out of five. And then by uh, March of 94, I went from five to number one and was a starting keeper for the team from 94, 96, where we won Olympic gold. And then the World Cup three years later, and that was just a phenomenal event. Obviously, um, the world was watching, especially in the United States, and we just really became, uh, you know, America's sweethearts, if you, if you will. Um, and, and as a, that team of players, including Sarah, we were just, you know, living our dream, trying to, to win, and the world uh, fell in love with, with us, with women's soccer, and that's when it really started to explode. And then um, from then, I played on the team for about 14 years, um, Olympic Games and other World Cups. I played three Olympics and four World Cups. Then from 2009 to 2010, and in 2010, in April, uh, my career was ended by a head injury that I suffered. Playing in the club game, uh, came out for a low, a low shot and never saw her coming. And she hit me in the side of my head with her knee directly. Uh, and that's when my life changed forever. Um, unfortunately, had all the typical symptoms of head injury, sensitivities to light sound movement. I had... Uh, issues with sleeping, I couldn't retain information, I couldn't learn new information, I couldn't remember where anything was, I struggled with a lot of different, uh, you know, balancing, and I had pain behind my ear, uh, and then the emotional piece, which is what I talk about most extensively, is the part that, they, that people don't know about, it's the part that people don't talk about, and I struggled with depression, I also struggled with anxiety, uh, I just, I essentially lost my way for about three years and, uh, you know, was suicidal um, in 2013, unfortunately. Um, but then I was thrown a lifeline, um, got the treatment I needed finally after a year of therapy and the, um, experimental surgery on my occipital nerves. Came out of that, became an advocate for concussion, um, concussion awareness, uh, testified before Congress, regarding it, uh, speaking to different kinds of medical groups, uh, soccer, uh, clubs, corporations, and all of that, and basically resurrected my career. And then now today, I mean, I just, I've really had a great recovery. I go all around the country talking about mental health. Um, it's, it's come so far, thank goodness, but there's still more to do. It's one of the passions of my life. I, Played soccer with Say for a long time, and I think as a group, um, all the women that played on the national team made a huge impact on the pitch, but that's not measured by our impact off of it. And I continue to do that um, in, this, in this area with mental health, with having resilience, uh, overcoming obstacles, and, and all of that. And I think there's a lot to be discussed with regards to how far we've come in, in the industry, but also um, how much more needs to be done um, with regards to women and head injuries in particular. Well, Sarah, tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up playing soccer. So I'm from Long Island, Huntington to be specific. Uh, I started playing soccer, you know, when I was like six or seven um, because my older sister did and then I picked up a few other sports along the way. Soccer always was sort of the one I wanted to do and pay attention if your kids do this. I want to be at practice first and then leave last. Went to University of Connecticut. I took our team to the Final Four twice 
um, playing defense for three years and attack for one year. And then toward the end of my, or after my freshman year actually, Tony DeChico, who was the coach of the national team, reached out to my coach and invited me to my first camp. From that point on, it was in my head like, okay, I think I can do this thing. Like, I really want to try to do this. So I worked out much harder. I watched lots of game tape. I got back there junior year, um, went to a camp, and then was able to join the national team that year and for the next few years, which was awesome because I only played for the national team like four to five years, and I got to be in the 99 World Cup, which was like arguably the coolest thing ever. Um, and then the Olympics in 2000. Um, we started the professional league after that, and I came back and played for New York. It was called the New York Power, which was awesome because we, we just went to practice and then basically hung out in New York City for the rest of the day, um, which is like the best life in your early 20s. I tore my ACL, which was fine. Um, it's very common, and it's very common to recover from, but I ended up getting an infection, a systemic leg infection, which took me a year and a few more surgeries to recover from. So similar, and I'm hearing Bry's story, and it breaks my heart because I know um, my own pain with that loss of losing an identity, which was me as a professional athlete, and having to restart, and hearing this from her really, um, you know, it hurts my heart because I know that feeling and I know she knows that feeling and I think we're here because we know everybody on some level has that feeling, right? That's on some way we've all lost an identity, we've all had to pivot, we've all had to figure it out and or we've watched our kids lose something and have to become something new. And I think we want to be here so that we can normalize that and also just say, yeah, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad, but there's ways to do it. You know, there's ways to get through it. And similar to Bri, I was also, because of that transition, developed a pretty bad eating disorder and depression. Um, also sort of ran out of my own personal motivation. And at that point, much like Bri, um, my support system stepped in, you know? And that was my family and my friends, and they were the ones who kind of guided me back onto a track. I went to get my degree, my master's in psych, um, and then realized I wanted to be able to work one-on-one -on -one with kids, and to do that, you have to get your doctorate. So I went and got my doctorate, and now I work in Westchester with a, you know, I have a private practice there. For better or for worse, I have a lot of athletes in the practice. <laughs> in terms of being an athlete, or even a person who performs at a high level across any capacity, this part above our neck has to actually be included in the process. So let's go back to, to 99 and talk a little bit about the team. What was that special sauce that made the team so good? Well, I think it was the players before. So this team has won either an Olympics or World Cup every cycle since 1991. We have won four Olympic games, four gold medals in Olympics, and four World Cup championships. And so I think what it is, it's, a, it's an understanding within the players um, that's passed down by other players going there and essentially learning the ropes and understanding what leadership looks like, understanding how we were probably more competitive on the practice pitch in training than we ever needed to be in a game. You know, we trained high competition, high competitiveness every session so that the game was actually easier. Before our first league in 2001, so you have the 1995 World Cup, 96 Olympics, and 99 World Cup. We Ooh. did residencies. 
for all three of those events, we were comrades, essentially, um, if you will, for lack of a better word, and dedicated to each other, as not only as soccer players, but as human beings, which if you contribute to the ability of someone to feel like they, they are cared about, like they matter, um, I think that's the, that's the, the secret sauce. And I mm -hmm. think that's the thing about this team that continues is that everyone matters and everyone is relevant. So you made mention of your injury. I'm sure it was a very traumatic time in your life. What was the impact like on your mental health back then? Well, it was a, it was a really interesting progression because it wasn't like a one and done. And it was sort of, I noticed that just, and this might be common, but my mental health was taking a hit and getting less resilient each time, which I think is something that happens. It was just the, the I think the combination of losing the thing, which became very unimportant. And Bri, you mentioned this too, but there's, but my, my mental health, I think I was in so much physical pain. I didn't really care about soccer anymore. Um, we, it was already so beyond the, the, the point that I was just like, well, I think I'm tapping out. You know, like this is all really hard and it's painful every day and I don't really know what to do with this. And um, when I finally recovered, as we've discussed, I didn't have anything left. You know, there's only so much you can do on your own. Um, and I think it really took my family stepping in and trying to find me the right supports. Now that was a bit of a disaster because not all psychiatrists are fantastic psychiatrists, but it took some bumps and it took people being resilient on my behalf and it took my friends really stepping up. So I think, you know, I did what a lot of us do and I found coping mechanisms. I stopped eating, you know, I started getting real anxious about weird things. I think that's a real normal brain response to feeling completely out of control and hopeless. I feel like hopelessness is sort of best friends with suicidality, so that's a real red flag. So I'm just really thankful that I had all that support because I didn't have it in myself. So it's awesome, you pick yourself up, <laughs> you decide, I'm gonna go help kids. Yes. Why did you decide to do that? Because I think like how Bryce says, like, no, we didn't feel helped, you know? and. I want to be someone who gets in there before it gets really bad and just say, it's normal. How do you feel? Do you feel like crap? That makes so much sense. Let's look at it. Let's figure it out. Let's figure something out. And I think, so when I went back, I got my price. So I started my practice in Connecticut. Now I'm in Westchester. But the first thing I did was go do some in-services at like the PT places because I really feel like athletes and humans who are in pain and or recovering from a sports injury and or recovering from concussion or whatever, it's really confusing to me why we don't pair that in the mental health component. So I went and talked to them and just said, hey, like, here's some red flags. Like, let's get these kids help. If they're coming in with their head down, they're not talking a lot, they look a little thinner, they're not motivated and they're hopeless, like, we gotta pull the alarm. Um, and so my practice is awesome. It's just not enough, you know? Um, so I think coming out and talking in these larger groups, and I often go into schools and talk, but I just feel like this conversation needs to be fostered and facilitated. So let's, let's go back to 2010. Sadly, you mentioned you got knee in your right temple and you had a traumatic brain injury. The next three years were terrible. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about those three years. Having a head injury affects everything else in your life. And that concussion that I had was unlike any concussion I'd ever had before. So one of the things I was confused by was the symptoms would come and go like water crashing on the shore. It, that's the, the crux of the issue, is you look fine. 
because there's no bandage on your knee, there's no brace on your ankle, there's no surgery scheduled. For head injury back then, there was no protocol other than sit in a dark room and make sure you get woken up every three hours um, to check on you. And now we've realized and, and research has shown that that's actually bad <laughs> to do. Back then, you know, dealing with head injuries um, was a black box. And so for me, it was difficult to find the right care. And then when I finally did find the right care, um, unfortunately my situation became a workers' comp situation and the insurance company fought me tooth and nail about it. And I tried to say to them, look, I'm not trying to milk this. I am hurting, I'm not myself. I don't wanna be your average you know, ability. I said, I wanna go back to me. I want to go back to that woman who stood in a goal with 90,000 fans and 107 degrees on the field and could focus on that soccer ball with all of that going on. That's the standard I want to try to get back to. So I need help. I don't know what kind of help I need. I need to find a doctor that can help me. And for the life of me, part of the reason why it was three years instead of maybe one and a half or two years is because of the battle with the insurance company. I had to keep going to court. And so all of these different complications, just like Say was saying, when you have things that happen in your life, they just wear you down mentally. And over time, I just felt smaller and smaller and just kept withdrawing into myself. So instinctively, I knew that there was something really wrong for that time, that I wasn't going to push past it. But I also knew that there was somebody that has to be a doctor out there somewhere that can help me and tell me what's wrong. I was struggling financially, mentally, emotionally, physically, I mean, in every way possible, the compounding of the situations going sideways, of the waves crashing on me, like a boat, in a boat, it, it just drug me down. It was like something was dragging me down. And at one point, for, for several months, I contemplated suicide. And when you get to a point where you think about the how, you know you're in trouble. Shortly after that, is when the Calvary came. And the Calvary was essentially my wife, Krissa, and she basically threatened the insurance company and said, look, you do right by her. You know this injury was caused by a work, in a work situation. You need to help her and get her the doctor she needs. Two days later, about face, I got the situation handled. I got the surgery that was experimental that I needed, and I got a year, it took a year of occupational therapy, physical therapy, cognitive um, exercises, vestibular, you know, recovery, I mean, all these things to get back to me. And I consider myself one of the lucky ones, but the reason I talk about it, and it wasn't until three years ago that I talked about the suicide piece because it was too close to me still. I wanna try to take the stigma off of it. And that's part of the reason why I choose to tell and talk about it now. And it's heavy, it's a heavy burden. And so I think, you know, I'm trying to help those people, trying to help caregivers understand, like Say was saying, when somebody comes in and they're different, you know, say something, listen, do something. You know, don't be afraid to help um, before it's too late. So when we talked a couple weeks ago, you mentioned uh, the lack of research yes. that was being done across certain parts of the population. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that and what you think we perhaps should be thinking about and doing differently? Certainly got a lot of healthcare people in the room who are yes. thinking about clinical research. Absolutely. So 
back then in 2010 until I'd say 2015, whenever you thought about concussion or brain injury, you'd always think about NFL football players. You know, big, strong men, very powerful men whose identities were lost after they stopped playing, like Say had mentioned, but also whose, whose identities and brains were damaged from playing. And so when you think of concussion, you think of that. And so what happened was all this research money and, and with the NFL and different sports like NHL, put all this money and research into concussions for those people, for men, you know, athletes. Well, what was left, left out were women and youth. So there's not a whole lot of research at that time going on in those spaces and women um, in, the, in the workplace, women in, in relationships with, with abuse, um, young kids playing sports and, and having concussions. I mean, there's not a lot of research done in, the, in those two areas, and so that's vitally important. I'm, I'm actually, you know, walking my talk. I, I participate in, in research studies. Uh, the, I'm in the SHINE study uh, for, for my brain. I'm also in a couple of different studies as well just to understand and, and help people coming forward about understanding how women are different than men with terms of recovery and the depth of injury and the time it takes to recover, about how um, head injury affects uh, young people. I'm lucky that I was 38 in, as opposed to 18 because having a head injury can, can change your entire life. I mean, kids who study, you know, they have their social um, people, they have their, their social lives, they have their, their classwork and their studies and they're doing all these different things. And when you have a brain injury, um, you have to understand and know what's going on. And a lot of parents don't. And I think research with, with youth and, and women would really help a lot of people in those regards. We obviously are taking, there's a lot more awareness of it nowadays. I think parents are absolutely focused on it as an issue. Do you think we're doing enough to protect young people today? Whether it's concussion, whether it's a knee injury, whether it's whatever injury, are we doing the right thing by the kids? And in terms of the mental health piece where I come in, it's not just kids with anxiety and depression and suicidality, it's the day-to-day -day difficulties of being out there and being a perfectionistic kid who's looking up at a parent who got the thing and did the stuff and having that expectation. I mean, I'm sort, sort of more looking at the acute piece of like, are we listening to these kids? Are they feeling heard? Not to an extent, we don't need to baby them, but you know, are they, feeling hurt, are we paying attention if something hurts? And by the way, if they say something hurts, but we know there's no injury, there's an injury, you just don't see it, and it's probably in their brain, right? It's, I don't mean concussion necessarily, I just mean they're avoidant for a reason, you know, they're coming up with stuff for a reason. As a parent of three kids in sports, I think the most important thing I can do for them is, for the most part, just try to listen to what they're saying and how they're feeling. How are you using your platform today to really draw people in and make people aware of what's going on with, with mental illness? So I always like to say that you know concussion and head injury, mental illness, um, mental health chose me. So by going through the situation I went through for those three years, I was determined to make it mean something. And I was also determined to share my story so that people could understand that the difficulty I went through as a Olympic gold medalist and a World Cup champion. So what I love to do is I go all over the country, um, and talk to corporations, talk to organizations. I do a lot of work, Fortune 500 companies. I will tell my story 
uh, about my journey, but I'll focus on the healthcare piece that I experienced, that I went through, and what I think needs to be done. And um, you know, for me, it's part of how I'm continuing to make an impact in a positive way uh, that's not on the pitch anymore. But I feel like I'm actually have the potential to have a bigger impact um, off the pitch than I did on it. I feel strongly about participating in in, in bringing awareness and and, and um, vocality to areas where I have a personal relationship with. And, um, you know, a partnership is very powerful. I mean, it only takes a few people going in the same direction to change the world. And I feel like I'm doing that right now. Um, and my work that I do, my speaking for me is just like when I was playing. That's my outlet. That's how I contribute. That's how I um, inspire in a positive way. Um, and I'm doing this not just for myself and for organizations, but for, for all the young people that come behind me. Um, just making it better for them so when they walk the same, a similar path, it's, it's better. What I hear in my office is people want to be helpful. Like they want to feel needed. They want to feel like they can make a difference in someone else's life. Especially right now, I mean, as she said, this at least the suicide ideation has skyrocketed in my office. People used to come into my office five years ago. I never brought out that form, that god-awful form, when I have to do a suicide assessment on kids. I'm doing threat assessments. So common. You have no idea. And my cohort of colleagues, we talk about it all the time. The severity is so much higher. The reporting is so much higher. The feelings are so much more intense. We as therapists, psychologists, clinicians, social workers are feeling incredibly overwhelmed. We feel a huge responsibility for these patients. I'm, for any of you who have psychiatry friends, they are incredibly overwhelmed. Um, so we have to start getting ahead of this and being more pr proactive um, because you know, it's, it's real dicey out there. Um, and I really hope that we can make some pointed steps to stay, get in front of it. You know, we got some big systemic work to do, but I think we're, this talk is indicative of the fact that we're headed in the right direction. The fact that people like Bri are now doing this for a living, that's indicative of the fact that we're doing the right thing. And mm -hmm. you had an incredible impact on the field, Bri, but there's no doubt this is more important than that. Um, so I'm so thankful for you that you're doing this. Brianna, Sarah, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate you coming. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of Pathfinders and Biopharma to discuss the important issue of mental health. An alarming number of serious mental health challenges go undiagnosed, and for many youth, the barriers to asking for help and accessing treatment can be significant. This is one of the many reasons the RBC Foundation USA is investing in initiatives that are raising awareness about youth mental health and providing equitable access to critical support. To learn more about the RBC Foundation's work to support youth mental health, contact us directly or visit our citizenship hub on rbccm.com and click on RBC Foundation USA. This episode was originally recorded on May 16th, 2023. If you're enjoying Pathfinders and Biopharma, don't miss an episode. Subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you all next time.
This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.